Hello everybody, great to be back with you this week on the Real Stuff podcast and geez, we have a cracker of a guest this week. We have the incredible Paul Bassett who is an icon of the Australian entrepreneurship and investor scene and just an all-round legend of a human being. Paul's background is pretty extraordinary to say the least. He's co-founder of Seek, one of Australia's most successful online businesses ever. You may have heard of it. It's the biggest employment platform in the country and ended up being an ASX top 100 listed company with a market cap of $4 billion. He's been a commissioner of the Australian Football League, also known as the AFL, to being a board member of Wes Farmers, to being co-founder of Square Peg Capital, where he spends a lot of his time now. SquarePeg is one of the most effective and successful VC firms in the country, holding more than $2.5 billion under management. Now, achievements aside, Paul is kind, he's generous, he's genuine, and he's full of energy, and he's been an amazing supporter of us at Stuff and also our work at the Man Cave. He gives a great insight into his entrepreneurial career, particularly the early days when he was pioneering a new industry, as well as some important lessons he's learned along the way in managing himself, his mental health, as well as some investment philosophies and the approach he takes with SquarePeg Capital. I really hope you enjoy this episode, and it's a great insight not only into Paul's achievements, but his character as a human being. I hope you get some gold out of it, and I look forward to speaking soon. Well, I'm very, very excited to uh, have you on uh, the show, Paul Bassett. You've been a fantastic supporter of me at Man Cave and then also through Stuff. But I think one of the things which I've really noticed in the time that we've uh, known each other is how generous you've been, not just from uh, um, you know supporting Man Cave and Stuff from a financial perspective, but actually opening up your time, your skills and your networks, and you just genuinely care for the cause and the mission. So I just wanted to kick it off by saying thank you for that. It's um, thank you yeah it's okay I'm, I'm fortunate to kind of meet some amazing people on this ride and you are absolutely one of the most extraordinary people I've met and just so real which is what I really resonate with and um, I'm excited over this um, however long we spend together just to kind of uh, unpack and unpick a little bit more about your journey as someone who's you know had some successes in the the business world but I'm also really interested in who you are as a person Looking, looking forward to chatting. And, and these are, um, I mean, I love these formats because it sort of feel, it feels like a, it feels like a conversation. The video bit, I, I know where the recording is, so unfortunately, people get to see me as well. I've, I've got, a, I've got a good head for podcasts, but uh, <laughs> let's see, let, let's see how we go with the video bit as well. But really, looking forward to it. That's uh, good. It's a, a medium in your favor. Uh, well, Paul. I thought I'd just start I, often, you know, so much of our kind of childhood and early conditioning shapes how we view the world from both, a, you know, potentially a positive, but also sometimes it gives us some challenges to work through. Love just to hear a little bit about your childhood and um, what shaped um, your character as a, as a young person. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a good, it, it, it's a good question. And I think it's easier to talk about your childhood than it is about kind of knowing how, you know, what, what impacts that, that had on his individual. I mean, I think that, that all these things are, are, you know, they're all, and I said through my own, through my own kids, a lot of people listening and watching will have children, some will, some won't, but you, you see it, you know, the, you see the whole nature nurture thing through, through the lens of, of your own kids. 
you know, I grew up in, in Melbourne, um, close family, older brother Andrew, that and Andrew and I did seek together with, with, with Matt Rockman, uh, older brother Andrew, older sister Sally, uh, living in Israel, where I'm, I'm at the moment. So I actually had dinner with my sister last night, which was, was really nice. My, my parents are both in their, you know, call it mid-80s and, and both in really, really great health. So we're, we're a really, really close family, which is great. You know, I think it's a sort of an it's a sort of an interesting juxtaposition. I grew up in in Melbourne, amazing opportunities, amazing lifestyle, incredible family. I mean, I'm amazingly grateful for that. Um, and and in that sense, you know, not everyone is is so lucky. Um, you know, and I think you know I'm directly reminded of that through through particularly through the lens of my mum, who grew up as a, you know was a Holocaust survivor, and and the first few years of her life were the complete opposite of the first few years of my life, and. And came to Australia as a refugee in, in the you know probably probably 1947 1948 as a as a Holocaust survivor, and um, and so I think you've got I think to some extent um, the combination of of growing up in a really just a very lucky lifestyle and incredible country and great family, and and that knowledge of of you know my mum's childhood I think you know certainly a great sense of gratitude um, for all the opportunities that I have. Um, but also cognizant of, you know, it's uh, um, um, not everyone, obviously, goes without saying, not everyone has those same opportunities. I think we were a pretty pretty normal family. My parents were, I would say, as parents were, you know, I think there were a couple of things. One was really strong sense of values and, and understanding who you are. And, you know, they're both, I mean, they're people, you know, I'm obviously incredibly proud of, but both unbelievably decent people and, and amazing values. And so hopefully that's had an impact on us but also pretty laissez-faire as parents like there wasn't like this strong just amazing structure and really strict family and so it was a it was a, it was a fun house, household to grow up in uh i want to pick up the thread obviously the the holocaust is what you shared from your your mother's experience and that's often we see that the the trauma can be what we say is generational trauma or result in things like post-traumatic stress but also the other side of it is post-traumatic growth and we we see so mm. many people who are able to um leverage the re incredible resilience of what they experienced and then set up not just their life but their family and their generation a few generations down the tracks life as well how open was your mum about what she experienced and with with you guys she, as kids? I mean yeah, I mean, I'd say a couple of things. One, it wasn't pervasive. It wasn't like the dominant theme in our childhood, in my childhood, in any sense of the word. So it wasn't pervasive as well. It wasn't pervasive. My, you know, my grandmother, who probably only does probably now about 20 years ago, um, died maybe less than 20 years ago, um, again, also Holocaust survivor. And she was, she was an adult survivor. And like my mum, who was a child survivor. So it wasn't pervasive. We're very aware about it. Mum shared it. I, I think because, you know, mum, operates and functions and has had such a successful life and successful career it wasn't like you know clearly it's a, obviously has left a much bigger imprint on her life than on our lives but it's not like it's not like just a dominated conversation all the time or there was just this incredible trauma that made it a complicated house to grow up in so it's I mean something obviously very aware of and speak about very openly and particularly as, as adults and mum subsequently written a book in the last few years which is about her experience which is which is fantastic, um, but it was it wasn't it wasn't pervasive in, in our lives at all. Interesting, and it's interesting to to hear that as something that is a you know it's a fraction of your life, but it's you know obviously quite yeah. defining and what it is, but it's not all That's encompassing. Right. Yeah, 
And it's a hundred percent. I think that's a good summary. Is um, obviously your, we'll get to your entrepreneurship uh, in a, in a moment in a bit more detail, but were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Oh, I mean, a little bit. I mean, yeah, not, not, I wasn't sort of that stereotype kid. It was, you know, like the American kid is like, you know, you know, buying lemons or yeah. and then selling or turning into lemonade and selling it at a thousand percent margin or, or like, you know, buying stuff cheaply and selling it to, you know, his or her mates at, at a big margin. That certainly wasn't me. I did one entrepreneurial thing at uni actually did it with Sharon, who was my then girlfriend and now wife and, and, and Andrew. And I'd, I'd met the guy, actually an Israeli guy who used to sing up at the beer garden at Surface Paradise Hemi. He was a really charismatic guy. <laughs> and I just organised a few concerts and uh, we organised a few concerts. And I think, you know, made enough money to have an overseas trip that summer when I was at uni. But that was that was really it. And and then went on a much more conventional career path and started my career as a lawyer. And I think, I think it was in my DNA to be an entrepreneur. I think that's kind of my temperament and personality. I either, I, I um, you know, I'm not... Um, I'm comfortable with risk. I think I have a good relationship with risk. I'm not. I'm not like sort of someone who just kind of just take risk for the sake of it. I feel like I have a very healthy relationship with risk. I feel like disrupting stuff is more fun for me, and building stuff. I love building. I love creating. I mean, I think if I had different skill sets, maybe I would have been an architect or something like that, or or, or an artist. But I, I literally have zero skill set in that area. Um, but I love building stuff. So that's my. That's probably my passion. I prefer. Th- starting things rather than finishing things um i'm comfortable with risk i like disrupting things and so the companies i get excited about are the, the startups i get involved in and lucky enough to sit on the board and 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 spend a lot of time with with amazing founders and so that's you know that's that's my passion but I, you know i could have easily gone a different different direction i could still be a lawyer today or i could be doing you know something could be doing something else well, I think that it's interesting in the startup scene, one of the things I've noticed is the amount of people who have begun the path of law, um, developed some mm. very hard skills, attention to detail, a discipline for being able to focus for extended periods of time, um, being reliable to their word, um, uh, but also are able to then have that transfer across into more innovative thinking and to the building of companies, which is, you know, as you're saying, a completely different skill set to coming in as the company's established or when the company is, you know, if they choose to exit entirely different skill sets. So it, um, is that something you found that the, the training ground you had, and if I'm correct, it was at ABL, right? You, where you yeah, were- I, was a, I was at Block Labor and, and loved and really enjoyed it, the experience. I learned a lot. I think I learned a lot from my colleagues, in particular partners I worked with. I learned a lot from the clients. So it was a, lot, a very entrepreneurial client base. So that probably worked in my phone. I would say, I would say two things. I think number one, yeah, you've summarized really well the skill sets that have been really valuable in my career, the the attention to detail, um, you know, the sort of problem-solving mindset. Um, but I would also say that like as a founder and those skills were useful, but there are all these other skills that I didn't have that someone else who maybe had a background in marketing or a background in sales or a background as software engineer, they'd bring their own skills with them. And so there was a lot more that I didn't know that, than I did know, but absolutely the skills that I brought with me were, were, were certainly useful and they were less about the, the hard legal skills and more about those, those attributes or disciplines that, that made a good lawyer. And I think, you know, I, 
On the other hand, I did have a tolerance for risk that was probably higher than the average lawyer. Someone said to me what? Someone said, oh, you should never stay at a law firm too long because like, you know, five, 10, 15 years later, all your all your mistakes get found out. Um, <laughs> I've no doubt that happened with happened with me, but I was I was gone by that point, you know, doing doing a startup. That's it. It's like uh, what do they say? You should never stay. It's never a good idea staying at a party past midnight. <laughs> you know, nothing good happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I think yeah, we've all, all, exactly. all done that. Sneaking in here, friends, with a really exciting opportunity that is red hot off the press. And that's that Stuff has just launched a crowdfunding campaign to activate our friends, customers, and the general public to become an investor and a shareholder in Stuff. We've had an epic couple years and become Australia's fastest growing men's grooming brand. We're now in 1,600 points of sale. We're the first ever Aussie men's brand to be stocked in Sephora. We're a B Corp, which is the highest certification of social and environmental responsibility a business can have. But you know what? The best bit is Stuff funds life-changing mental health programs for thousands of young men. And we want to open this opportunity to our incredible community to own a slice of the pie, to be a business owner alongside me, and to ensure that stuff can reach the potential that we know it has. So I'll put a link in the show notes. It's through a platform called Virtual. The expressions of interest are only open for the next two weeks. So get in while it's red hot. And I would love to have you along for the journey. All right, back to the episode. Um, and exactly. in those early years when, you know, if I think about in your, your kind of your mid-20s or your late 20s, you're about to begin your, you know, entrepreneurial uh, opening with with Seek, were there any major influences on your life, whether it be people, events, or books, or things that have really kind of cracked you open? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, you know, events and, and with that people. I mean, so it's interesting for me. I mean, there is a, there's a sort of a, you know, there's a two-part story that that led to, to Seek. And, you know, the, the, the context was, Evan Thornley, who was a friend of mine from uni and been very involved in Stuart Poli- student politics, and you know, and Evan and I still see each other pretty regularly. We caught up a few weeks ago. Um, Evan rang me one day. I would have been probably 1995. That's, that's a long time ago now. And um, and he said, "Oh, look, I need. Um, I'm setting up an internet company. I need a lawyer." I didn't know what the internet was. I mean, I had this vague notion. I mean, people used to talk about the information superhighway. Um, the joke that very few people will, will actually, well, firstly, even if people knew what I was talking about, not many people would think it's funny, but, you know, it's the sort of the thing that Al Gore invented because he, he used to he used to take a little bit of credit because I think he passed some legislation that, that was an, <laughs> a bit of an enabler. But, um, you know, people talk about information superhighway. So this vague notion of the internet, but I'd never used it. And so, of course, I started using the internet as a result of acting for Evan, for LookSmart, for the company that um, Evan and his then wife, Tracy, um, started. And um, so that was an eye-opener for me. And I remember the first time, I didn't have a computer at home, I didn't have a computer at work. The first time I went on, you know, went onto the internet, I was at my parents' place. Uh, I went around there and um, I remember seeing like what I now recognise as a banner ad for Earth's biggest bookstore, which of course was Amazon. But it was just like, it was an eye-opener for me, like learning about the internet and the potential of this medium. So that was that was a sort of the, the context. Um, and then the, the immediate cause, again, it's just these things are these things are a combination of serendipity and then, I guess, to some extent, taking advantage of that, that serendipity um, and, and seizing the opportunity. I, I, Sharon was, this is March 1997, March 16, 1997. 
Sharon was pregnant with Jasmine. She would have been six months pregnant. Jasmine was born at the end of June, um, 97, our second child. And, um, and we were looking to buy a house. And so we're looking to, to move to a bigger place. We buy a house, sort of get out in the suburbs. We're living in South Yarra. And um, anyway, long story short, and for most people listening to this podcast, they want to, they will never look for a house in the newspapers. They're not familiar with the frustration of, of the real estate classifieds. But standing at this auction and Sharon, like, and it wasn't the right place for us to buy, but Sharon's like kicking me, saying we should bid, we should bid. And just the whole frustration of looking for a house using the newspaper classifieds, anything you liked, you couldn't afford, anything that you could afford, you didn't like. There wasn't much of anything in the way of images, very short descriptions because you were paying for space, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so then I just had the idea of doing an online real estate site. Um, cut a long story short, I chatted to Andrew a few days or a week or two later. Um, the idea of real estate morphed into jobs for, for reasons that are probably not that relevant. Um, and, and we got started later that year in November 97. And to give people the, I think the scope of how big Seek is, are you able to just illuminate that a little bit further from what it started in its humble beginnings to where yeah, it is? Yeah. 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 I mean, bearing in mind, I, I left, I left in 2011 and it's got a lot bigger, a lot bigger <laughs> since I left, but um, which is, which is amazing. And obviously, you know, it's amazing to see that, you know, the job that Andrew and, and others have, have done um, over the last, you know, last 12 years since I left, but obviously a lot of people over a 25, nearly 26 year period, which, which is amazing. Um, so we, you know, we started, we focused initially on Australia. We built a really strong position in Australia and then the New Zealand market and, and you know, job classifieds or, or you know, marketplace businesses for, for jobs or real estate like real estate.com.au or cars, et cetera, tend to be winner take most winner take all markets and so we built we we understood that and i think executed really well and, and you know and, and had real clarity around strategy and um and so we built a really strong position in australia subsequently expanded and you know very different roles matt matt sort of focused on sales i sort of i had it and marketing um and and product and finance and hr all report to me andrew very much focused on growth and strategy and and that growth ultimately became around um geographic growth as well as intervocational education and training so you know china southeast asia brazil mexico um you know seek i you know i won't get the metrics right but seek today is probably probably about a billion and a half dollars in revenue and um and when i left it was i actually can't remember but it was it was you know maybe 500 million dollars in revenue and probably two and a half billion dollar market cap and i think i'm going to get the market cap wrong today but it's probably around 10 billion dollars in market cap and yeah it's become a really significant business but more importantly i mean i think we we were really proud of you know firstly um the people in the organization um, their sense of ownership, whatever I contributed, the, the culture. Um, I think, you know, I, I think people loved working at Seek and, and that culture was very much built by everyone. It wasn't about Andrew and Matt and, and myself. It was about, it was about a whole team. Um, and, and then I think also, obviously, most importantly, the impact. And, you know, one of, the, one of the reasons, one of the real passions for us about jobs was is that career is an incredibly important people, thing in people's lives. And if we could help find, pe help people find 
jobs that were really fulfilling, um, give the, obviously provide financial security, but but really fulfilling and get a great sense of satisfaction from their work. That would be, you know, that that was something that was really important to us. It wasn't it wasn't sort of selling people widgets, and there's nothing wrong with selling widgets to people, but it was it was something that was you know really really important in people's lives, which which is great. Absolutely. Well, you're, you're tying, a, as you said, a, a higher purpose, which is where we get often uh, identity, you know, confidence, purpose, belonging. Uh, and, you know, to your point earlier as well, it's you know, serendipity, but also strategic timing and, and making the most of that timing too. Um, and I'm just curious, like, I, as part of my entrepreneurial journey, it, it's such a roller coaster. Like there are, yeah. it is, a, it is a, a ride where, you know, there's absolute high highs and exceptionally low lows. Were there any uh, crucible moments for you that what I would say is like teachable moments for you in the journey in Seek that were not as glossy and pretty, but actually you know pretty gritty and, and raw? Yeah, and I think I don't want to. I don't. And I don't want to. I don't want to gloss over that first thing you said because I think it's a really important point, and you're experiencing it yourself as a founder. And and I was, I was chatting to a founder um, last week, and we were talking about this, and I said to her. I said, I don't know if you're anything like me, but, you know, the good days, you're like you're floating on air and the bad days felt pretty awful. It's like, you know, sort of mired in quicksand. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm so glad. You know, I'm sort of so glad you said that. That's exactly, you know, that's sort of exactly how it feels. And um, and so I think, it, by the way, I do think it gets a bit better over time. I think the good days aren't quite as special. They are still pretty special, but there's, you know, it is an amazing feeling on those good days and the, and certainly there were less bad days or those bad days get a bit less tough. And I think there's a, there's a, you know, people talk about product market fit or pre-product market fit or post-product market fit. I think the thing is, is pre-existential and post-existential when you get to a certain point where it's no longer existential and there's obviously lots of really important questions and can you build a really significant business, but you know, there's a business that's going to survive. Um, I would say the dot com crash was a was a you know was a significant period for us. Um, I, I think actually one 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 moment early on there was actually a really it's funny it's not it wasn't that important but it's sort of like it's funny it stuck with me like I remember the story like it was yesterday and was very very early and. So we obviously, one thing about Seek is you didn't actually know when someone got a job because, I mean, we're not, we're not a recruitment firm. We're just, you know, we're, we're a, a media. And so people would apply for jobs and we have all the metrics around applications and how many applications per job ad. And sometimes you get, a, there was a feedback loop, you know, around people getting placed. But in literally, our, I think it was our first week, we got an email from, from a woman and, and I can't remember her name. And she said, I just wanted to let you know I found a job through Seek and I want to thank you and it's amazing. And like you, we, you can imagine, when talking about the high days, that was probably the highest of the highs. Like we're a week in um, post-launch and we've actually know there's someone who's found a job for us. That was really special. And it was a, the, it was actually with a recruitment firm called Fashion Careers, a guy called Tim Irwin. I remember Tim's name really well. And um, a guy called Tim Irwin and he was actually hiring like an office manager for his own organisation. He was a recruitment firm in the fashion industry. And I was like, oh, it was such an exciting moment. About a month later, two months later, I was up in Sydney seeing clients and I went and saw Tim and this woman was in reception and we chatted and I introduced myself and it was so exciting. I was like, I was, I can't tell you how excited I was. And then I went into Tim's office and said, hi. And he's like, this like started with a bit of a rant 
like, oh, seek is hopeless. We're not getting any results and a waste of money and I'm going to stop advertising. And I'm like, what about, you know, and pointing to, you know, uh, call it Julia. I really, I, I wish I remembered her name, but I, I won't pretend that I did and that I do. And uh, like, what about Julia? You placed her. It's like, yeah, other than her, but obviously there's no revenue for us. It's just an internal thing. Other than her, the candidates are crap. We're not getting good results. We haven't had any placements. And so that for me was just, you know, I think it's a sort of a, a moment. There was a sort of a, a learning around resilience. And, and part of the reason was it's not a big deal itself because we had hundreds of conversations like that. But it was kind of like I was just on such this high and you walk in and you just get punch you know the the Mike Tyson I I line everyone's got a plan until they get punched in their face and um and and it's so true um and um and that was a, a you know, just a great case of that where it was like it's like bang and so grit and resilience is such it's such an important thing in life but as a founder um and, and some of the people listening as the founders others are just folks doing all sorts of different things in their lives grit and resilience is such an important attribute Oh, absolutely. And uh, I listen, I think about that. You've got the emotional high of, you know, this person, you've met them, there's like, they've reached out to you, there's a sense of connection. And then just the, the harsh reality check of um, the logic coming in. And uh, I listen, I, it brings back many memories for me of, of being promised the world, you know, particularly in a capital raise scenario, and people just, you know, not coming through for, for a variety of reasons as what happens, you know, and I think that's, um, and often I think we talk about resilience as this quite this like it's almost got it's it's like a you know it, it loses its substance how often we talk about it but true resilience yeah. is when you just don't know how the hell you're going to get through but you just keep trusting and you you know you support yourself you put you try and manage your energy you try get you know the right team around you trust around you and you, you just have to keep going um, that's, that's right that's right and resilience isn't delusion. That's the other thing. Like sometimes people confuse resilience and delusion. And I, and I can think of it. It goes to the territory of founders. And I know I would have been guilty of this. And it's like, it's not like ignoring reality or it's not like pretending. It's kind of dealing with stuff as it is and accepting it and, and picking yourself up off the floor and, 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 and moving on. The interesting segue to kind of go down into is one of the journeys I know I've particularly had to be proactive about, and I often use the language of playing offense with my well-being opposed to defense, um, particularly as I, you know, manage the different business commitments I have is like the more intense my professional environment comes, the more actually I need to upskill my personal well-being and my relationships around me and it's pretty hard as a founder when you feel like the businesses are literally an extension of you and wake up you know in the middle of the night thinking about it, wake up in the morning and it, that's just normal like I couldn't imagine a life yeah. any differently and um, I, I'm curious for you like how have you managed your mental health as you've navigated yeah. some pretty substantial growth times but often growth isn't always like the exponential growth curve to the you know the hockey stick growth growth is often cyclical and comes in very unconventional ways how, how do you manage your well-being in times of you know immense stress yeah and I, and I probably wouldn't have known how to answer that question truthfully you know 10 or 15 certainly certainly 20 years ago and i said i think you know you're you're almost literally i think how old are you 30 how old are you Hunter? 32 yeah 32, there you go. Just look look 30. And, um, um, you know, you're, I mean, almost literally a generation, you know, 
younger than me. I mean, my my oldest is um, you know Joel's twenty seven, and um, I um, and so I think the great thing is is this is like just a convert. This is not a conversation that probably my generation would have had. I mean, we weren't doing podcasts a generation ago either, but we just wouldn't have had this generation and uh, wouldn't have had this conversation, which is which is amazing. And I know like the way I talk about it with with my kids and they talk with each other. It's just like you know challenges around mental health are no different to like you've got a headache you 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 know you take some panadol or you've got a you know you've got a broken arm or you've got diabetes and so you know it's it's incredibly healthy the attitude that we are most people now are bringing to mental health which is amazing it's been a great journey for me so i've learned from from people like you which you know which i'm really grateful for that's probably number one number two i think the, and I'm not answering your question yet, but I will come back to it, I promise. And um, um, I, I think number two is that um, it is one of, that's the, the good side. The bad side is I think we've become aware. I, I don't know if mental health challenges are greater now than they were, but we are certainly much more acutely aware of them. And there is a, you know, there's an anxiety epidemic in our community. Um, there's obviously lots and lots of, so many mental health challenges and so many people experience so much difficulty in their life. And it's amazing that we talk about it much, or a lot of people talk about it more openly. It's, it's amazing that there's a lot more tools available to help people, but, you know, gee, we've got some, you know, real challenges on the front. And so stuff that I've had, you know, around mental health has been pretty modest in comparison, but I mean, I had, I don't really, I don't know if I've ever really talked about public. I talked friends and stuff about, it. I had some panic attacks. Oh, about i'm just trying to remember the first one first time i had one i didn't realize it was a panic attack um and then i subsequently had one actually here in, in israel and and i kind of i used to watch the sopranos on tv and i was like oh i think that's a panic attack what i just had and so that was sort of a bit of a journey for me to realize that i you know i've sort of you know it was a reasonably tough period it was a you know probably a six-month period but you know sort of dealing with a bit of anxiety working through it i had a mate who was a psychiatrist and i just rang him one day I said, I'd love to, I need to come and see you. I've got a bit of an issue. And so that, that was been really good for me to work through and understand that actually I didn't realise I was an anxious person. So I had zero awareness so I was an anxious person. And I think most people, it's not like everyone has said to me after, it's like everyone says to me, oh, yeah, yeah, like, I can't believe you didn't know that. People don't see that in me. Uh, people think, I think people perceive me a bit differently to the way, I think, to the reality that I think people are um, sort of pretty calm and, and all that sort of stuff. And so it was so that's been, that was a really interesting challenge for me. I'm really grateful to have gone through that experience because I, I think I can manage. I'm much more aware of that, much more open about it. I manage. I think I manage my health pretty well. These were very mild problems, frankly, compared to what other people experience. I just want to. I don't want to pretend that like oh yeah, I understand what people have gone through with severe depression or severe anxiety. Um, but it felt really tough for me. It was it was a really tough period for me. And, um, and the way I think about, I think about four things, um, um, you know, as sort of, you know, as a sort of the pillars, I, I think about, I think about my physical health. Um, I, I think about my health generally, so sort of physical health, mental health, um, uh, think about um, exercise and think about diet. Um, I'm better on some than others. I'm pretty terrible on diet. Um, the other, other pillar, sorry, I forgot about, sorry, health exercise and physical and mental health exercise diet and sleep sleep is the fourth the one that i've realized is probably the most important for me is sleep 
Um, now, maybe I'm just squibbing on health on on diet because I'm hopeless at it. I don't really want to try that hard. Uh, I just don't seem to have any me to try hard. But sleep is sort of the underpinnings, and I think a lot of other stuff comes from from, from that for me. Um, but the mental health, yeah, it's. I mean, I, I work somewhat hard on it in terms of you know whether it's um, mindfulness exercises, whether it's just stopping and and taking time out to, um, you know, to look after myself, conscious of energy in versus energy out, working with people who can who can help me on all sorts of stuff around, like coaching type, you know, sort of stuff. I get a lot out of that. Um, and, and I just sort of say to people, I think the more, the more time you can carve out for yourself in terms of looking after yourself and being having a bit of you know, time where you're a bit selfish, um is is really 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 important and it's actually not selfish at all because you're looking after yourself but you're of course also looking after all the people in your life if, if you're in a much better place um then your interactions with all the people in your life are going to be much much healthier yeah absolutely i think that there's a saying when the plane's going down you put your face mask on first um which <laughs> yeah, I think exactly summarizes it really well you know and it, not only is it the right Thing to take care of yourself for your own energy but you know when we are feeling full and nourished we can actually make better decisions we can actually be more present we can um, be more loving we can have more energy to you know be a high performer if that's what we want to do so it is a little it's, it's kind of blatantly obvious but somewhat um, it's like you know us as humans we are often a, a species with amnesia <laughs> we, we forget things very very quickly but it, it's interesting, a couple of things I'll just pick up from, from what you shared. I think the sleep thing is so important. And I think we're really starting to get that in this generation, particularly with the accessibility we have to so many distractions and pleasure seeking devices that, you know, pull our serotonin and dopamine into, you know, uh, the palm of our hand. Um, but to your point, sleep hygiene is one of the most important things for for our well being, and having a, a clean sleep practice is, yeah, kind of tricky to do. But once you can develop that ritual, it makes huge um, leaps and bounds in, in our well being. And the second thing I'll just say as well is, it's interesting. I, I actually had my first panic attack when I was about twenty, and I also had no freaking clue what was happening to me. I remember I was driving, and I was like home and I had well, I just my brain started rattling off all these commitments and my heart started to pulse and I was like what the hell is happening to me I thought I was having a, a heart attack and so I kind of pulled over on the side of the road had no education about this no idea and I actually had to call my mom to come get me when I actually even went to the hospital to get tests done and they were like are you just a bit stressed you actually checked out to be quite healthy but it's become yeah, something you're not having a heart attack. Yeah. You're, you're actually okay. Mr. 20 year old. Um, but it was a, it was a illuminating moment for me around. I was like, wow, I actually have no idea, but what is going on or how to deal with this? Do I even talk about it? And you know, this was what 12 years ago. So there's still quite a bit of shame around mental health at that point in time too. Um, but it's, it's my anxiety. The, one of the things I've learned about anxiety is it the way I've heard it described, which actually resonates quite well for me anyway, is that depression is being uh, at parts of us are attached to the past. So things uh, in the past and our anxiety is uh, parts of us um, thinking about the future and trying to prevent the future, which I think is an interesting mental model. Um, and I think, yeah, this practices, as you've already alluded to, whether it is mindfulness or contemplation or just getting in your body and exercising are ways to really bring us back into the presence. And um, 
I, I also think it comes with the territory of high performance at times as well is because there is an ability to take on more and more and more. But the reality is we aren't machines. You know, we are human beings and our brains and our systems can't just continually take more on until we actually start to process and move things through. So yeah, I just want to say thanks for sharing that too. It's, it's, you know, it's important, I think, to role model authenticity to people. And um, yeah, I think, yeah, I've just, that was really, yeah, I thought it was beautiful for you to share. So thank you. Um, moving into the journey with Square Peg, um, a bit of a, a step change from the days at Seek. Um, one of the things I actually probably want to get into, if I'll just get you to kind of frame up Square Peg uh, from your point of view. Um, and then what is it that you really see makes businesses stand out? Because you you have the ability, I would say that it's, um, yes, you're looking at the business, but you also see so many layers than just the business. So I'd love you to talk to that as well. Yeah, I mean, sort of the journey. I mean, we started, so it's 2012, it's 11 years ago now. Um, you know, um, Tony Hall, Just Liberman, Barry Brock were long-standing friends, different contexts, how, how I knew each of them. And, and we sort of started the journey together and it's obviously evolved a lot from there. There were, you know, number one, we were we're really passionate about Australia becoming a more innovative country. And, and so much of innovation and so much of value creation, I mean, very creation in the best sense of the word. Um, it's not just about share prices and market cap. It's about creating jobs that are well-paying, productive, rewarding jobs that provide people with purpose. But so much value creation in the world today is done by startups. And, and startups are very often not always operating globally rather than locally, and they're solving problems globally rather than locally. So we were kind of really firmly of the view that Australia had to produce a much greater number of world-class startups over the succeeding 10 or 15 years than we had over the last, the preceding 10 or 15 years. And obviously there were some notable exceptions. I mean, you know, most notably Atlassian, which is a remarkable business. Um, and, but, but businesses like realestate.com.au, which is a terrific business and and a whole a whole bunch of other, you know, companies like Envato that had come along, a whole bunch of other terrific companies. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a lot, not that many of the best and brightest talent was gravitating towards startups. And we felt there was a sort of a bit of a, uh, potentially a bit of a change underway. Um, but the biggest, we thought the biggest gap in the market was there was no venture capital. There was essentially no venture capital industry in Australia. There were a few firms that earlier that had emerged that had sort of disappeared, emerged around the dot-com period, late 90s, disappeared sort of in the preceding years prior to 2012. And so we thought there was a real opportunity for us to help catalyze a startup ecosystem in Australia. Obviously, you know, that contribution is a modest contribution. You know, there are a lot of people who have, have contributed to, I think, what's been a, an amazing success story in Australia in the last decade. I think the number of great startups we're producing is remarkable. Dozens and dozens of great companies. We've been lucky at Square Peg. We're back some of them. We've missed a whole lot of them as well. It's just the nature of what we do, but we've been really, really lucky. And so obviously in the last decade, you know, we've seen businesses like Canva emerge and Airwallex emerge and, and Afterpay and, and Rocked um, and a whole lot of great culture and a whole lot of great Aussie companies um, emerge over the last decade. Um, and so that was kind of the purpose, to help catalyse the startup ecosystem by not just writing checks, but A, being able to write checks and B, be able to follow on and support them through the journey, um, number one. But number two, provide a whole, hopefully a whole lot of support not just financial support. And, and again, a real mindset. And I think where we've been lucky is I think a lot of our peers, a lot of people, a lot of the other venture funds that emerged at a similar time to us or 
a few years later, have brought a similar mindset, which is around a real founder empathy, real support for founders. Because when there had been a venture capital industry in Australia, they'd been really, they'd been really, really founder unfriendly. And like people didn't want to interact with them. They were super aggressive in deal terms. They'd be booting out founders and all that sort of stuff. And so I think what we've seen in Australia is a real sea change in that venture capital industry, which has been great. I think we've played a role in helping catalyze that. The heavy lifting is done by the founders. But what the VC funds have been able to do is, is provide some really good support and mentoring and, and, of course, most importantly, financial support for, for them on, on their journey. And so we're seeing a, a really different ecosystem in Australia. Um, we're, we're looking for, I mean, you know, we're really lucky. I mean, the thing I love about my job, I really, I mean, it's funny, it's, you know, being in venture capital is like investing a bit like people think, of, a lot of people probably think about VC as like, it's the same as investing in, you know, buying, you know, investing in bonds or in listed equities or in private equity. I don't, I don't particularly passionate about the investing part of venture capital. I mean, it's, it's obviously part of the role. It's a pretty important part of the role. I'm just energized by interacting with founders. And, um, and that's what, that's where my energy comes from. I had a, I had a great session a couple of days ago and I actually wrote myself a note. It was like, Oh, this I was just so, so energized after the, 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 the set, this session, just a really great person I've known for a few years. It's just, a, just so driven, so positive, so competitive, um, so much resilience. And so we are, we're a very founder centric VC. Um, other funds are less founder centric. It's more about metrics or it's more about themes. We're, we're pretty thematic as well. Um, and we've been focused on three or four key themes, but the, for us, it starts with the founder, and um, and and these people are, you know, I see elements of that through a lot of the different founders we're backed. Um, they're, they're driven, uh, they're competitive and ambitious. They're smart, but they're they're also humble. They know how to surround themselves with incredibly smart people. Um, they they are resilient. Um, not all of them bring all of the attributes. Like in a perfect world, the founders would be amazing listeners. A lot of them aren't. A lot of the nature of their personalities are not as good at listening. But again, it just really varies. And so we don't expect a founder to bring all of those attributes. But, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's a, being honest about it, it's a little bit like love at first sight. And, and I'll meet a founder and I'll, I'll often, particularly because we're investing very early stage and a lot of the best company, you know, Jack Zhang and Air Wallex. It was like, met him for an hour, you know, want to back, want to back, here, want to back Air Wallex is a really good example guy called Shimon Elkabetz, um, catching up with catching up with over here with Tomorrow, one of our portfolio companies. And I met him at JFK. He I was he was arriving, I was leaving. We met in a we met at the airport there. And I was just like, and again, my colleague Philippe had been spending time with him, said, you've got to meet Shimon. And I was like, oh my God, this guy's amazing. Um, obviously what Melanie and Cliff have achieved at Canva is is incredibly inspirational. And they've and, and the other thing about these people is they just inspire another generation of founders. And so you get this flywheel effect, which we did not have in Australia, and we've now very much got in Australia, and that's very exciting. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, you're so right. I think my generation looks up to them uh, and just goes, wow, they're approaching business in a way that is like significantly different to anything that, um, you know, 10 years ago uh, when I was beginning my entrepreneurial degree, it's an entirely different ballgame. And to your point, there actually is an ecosystem um, and it's slowly starting to get plugged at different different levels. The, the I guess one of the, the questions I have is who 
who are the people you mentioned a few founders, but who are the people from an investment philosophy point of view or investment principle point of view that have really shaped how you move through your investment decisions? I mean, I, you know, that, that's, that's probably been, I mean, that's certainly been part of the journey. I, I think what I would say, I mean, it's kind of, you know, Lee Fixel, who was at Tiger Global who started his own firm, four or five years ago addition, I think Lee's clarity and ability to move quickly and kind of, you know, I, I think I learned a lot from Lee. But I think for me, more fundamental, fundamentally, I think two things. One is, I mean, you learn this pretty early in venture. If you don't learn this, you're not going to do very well. Um, venture is a business of outliers. And, and we we are unashamed about that. So we don't, we don't invest, we don't make as many investments as some other funds do. And some funds make a lot, a lot of investments see which ones are going to kind of work out and then kind of really go after and really support those. That's not really our style. We're, we're very much high conviction in our approach. And so we meet someone like Jack um, and we invest. But we're also pretty unashamed, Jack saying at Airwatch, we're, we're pretty unashamed. If we, if, we don't, if we don't have that level of excitement, we actually think the company, the founder, deserves investors who are incredibly passionate and excited about what they do. And so if we meet someone, we say, this is interesting, something could happen, maybe the founder could kind of evolve, you know, in a way that's a little bit unexpected. It probably won't get there, but there's a chance. Let's write a little check and see how it pans out. That's not us. I'm, I'm not being critical of that approach. And I think, you know, arguably there's some real merits to that approach. So our approach is very high conviction. Um, it's very founder-centric. Um, you know, certainly learned from a whole bunch of different venture funds and how they do things. But the thing, you know, I, I think there are two things. So one's a search for outliers and being very clear on that. And I think the other thing for me is, and, and I was chatting to one of my colleagues about this the other day, um, you know, for me, for me, and everyone's a bit different, if I'm unsure, that actually means no. Um, because, I, you know, you know it when you see it. When I met Shimon, I wasn't unsure. Bruce, I mean, I'd known Bruce Buchanan at Rock for a number of years so before, so that that made it even e the decision even easier. Um, but you meet people like that, and it felt like a very easy decision. Now, by the way, we don't get all of them right. That's not the point. The point is, is that we're meeting founders. There are so many things that can go wrong with a startup, particularly, you know, the, the stage that we invest at. There are way more things that can go wrong than can go right. It's not like you meet these people and they're guaranteed a success. They are putting themselves out there. They're taking a risk. The likelihood of failure is much greater than the likelihood of success. Success can be measured in all sorts of different ways. You know, that not necessarily going to become this huge, great, different, massive success. Um, but we think that, you know, we're looking for people where there's a, you know, where the there's an asymmetrical risk of the upside. And that's what I love about what we do. We're looking for what can go right, not what can go wrong. We've got a healthy attitude towards risk. Um, you know, I talk to other people investing and they're like, I just don't understand, you know, this could go wrong, that could go wrong. How, how could you have invested that when 10 different things could have gone wrong? So like, that's not the point. We looked at the one thing that could go right and is, is there a relatively good likelihood of it happening or a decent likelihood of it happening? And if it happens, could they build something really big in success? And so it's a very positive, optimistic, you know, investing, obviously, in any investor you talk to, and the first thing they'll talk about is, is like, it's all about preserving capital. The first thing I focus on is preservation of capital. That's not how we think about it at all. We've got a very healthy appetite towards risk and that makes it a lot of fun. Absolutely. And I think it marries up to your strategy of focusing on the outliers. And part of that game is some some will absolutely fly and some won't, but that comes with the territory of, of, of the space. 
Um, and I'm curious, obviously, the, the state of the world has taken some leaps and bounds and, you know, backward steps. It's, it's you know, what I would say is we're at a point of a bit of a, a meta crisis where we have multiple exponential challenges running into each other at the same time. How has the state of the world um, and the way we're trending impacted how you decide to do business? Yeah, I mean, I think, number one, the, the, the state of the economy at a point in time is particularly relevant because if we're invest, investing in a business today, this is about what sort of business can I build over the next 10 years. So if kind of GDP is growing by 4% or 2% or declining by 2%, that doesn't matter so much. That's not a particularly relevant variable, whilst it might be for, for other types of, uh, of investors. So that's sort of the first point. It, it, it's, it's, you know, I'm... I'm you know, I'm 55, and this is certainly the most complicated. And you know, we've we have you know most of the the you know most of the first 40 years of my life wasn't a particularly complicated period for the world if you look at a historic sense. But it certainly feels like we're in a a much more complicated time at the moment than we have been. There is always a glass half full perspective. There's always a glass is half empty perspective. But clearly, there there is a lot of complexity. Um, and you know, even if you think about the rise of China. I think all of us, and me included, I mean, someone who was, you know, in, in investing in China and, and and we had a very successful business in China. I loved, I, you know, I probably did, you know, 20, 25 trips there in, in four or five years and loved spending time there. Um, the rise of China, I think we all saw in a very positive terms a few years ago, and now we see it in very negative terms. And, and, and I think the reality is always more complex and more, always more nuanced than all of that. Whilst obviously something like Russia invading Ukraine, it's very hard to see that in positive terms it's it's terrible and it's evil but of course has also led to you know probably a strengthening of the resolve of liberal democracies and understanding actually that these values that we stand up for in liberal democracies actually really matter they really count and rather than taking this stuff for granted and being too critical of the systems and the societies that we live in it actually you know they're, they're better than the alternative they're very flawed there's a lot of things we can do better as a society and then there's the piece around existential crisis, uh, the around climate change, which is obviously the great existential crisis of, of our lifetimes. And um, and you know, I mean, I, I think you know the the data is unambiguous. We've, last week we had the five hottest days ever recorded in human history. Now I don't know how long human history goes back in terms of recording temperature. It's probably a couple hundred years. Um, and maybe it's coincidence, and maybe there are other factors at work. But we've now got years and years and years of data. And, you know, people who, you know, do I understand the science of climate change? Of course I don't. I'm one of the 99.9% .9 of people who don't, 99.99% of people who, who don't understand the science of climate change. Um, I also don't understand how my heart works. And when I go to experts and you do scans, they say, look, Paul, um, if you don't take this pill, you're going to die. But if you do take this pill, you know, you'll be fine. Um, what do I do? I don't like, I don't sort of, you know, try to look at what compounds there are and do research. I just take the damn pill. Now, it doesn't mean the doctor's right. Um, you know, she or he may well get it wrong and make a mistake. They're humans. But, you know, they, they've they studied and a lot of work's been done and they bring expertise to bear. And, you know, when, you know, when before drugs come to market, you know, there's a decade of work in terms of clinical trials, etc. And so I find it, you know, really strange that, you know, people are very happy to take medicines, or most people are, when their doctor tells them to. But, you know, when all the experts, when all the experts say we've got this existential crisis, some of them may disagree on the, the severity, the timeframes, the implications, but they all say the same thing. And then there's 
a large proportion of population saying, oh, no, 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 you're wrong. No, 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 I know more about this stuff than you thousand experts. You're wrong. And this kind of absolute pride in being anti-science and this pride in being ignorant. And, and the words ignorant or stupid are, are, are two very different things. You should you never criticise someone for, for, you know, their levels of intellect, whether they're high or low or whatever. But you do criticise people for being ignorant and being proud of their ignorance. And so I think that's the, you know, that's clearly the big issue in society. But even those of us who kind of are bought in and know there's something happening and believe there's something happening, we're not doing it enough about it. And so that's the, you know, that's obviously the the big, that is the 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 big challenge of, of obviously of our lifetimes. And I'm again, I'm an optimistic person, and I think the the mo- many of the problems will be solved by innovation and creativity and private capital. But governments obviously have a public decision makers obviously have an important role in terms of creating the platform, creating the incentives. There's a reason why Australia has a higher adoption of rooftop solar in than any other country in the world. There's a whole lot of reasons, but part of the reasons is around policy settings we've had in Australia. So this stuff matters. It can make a difference. Yeah, I think it's if we can, you know, the private sector can work alongside government sector, that and then you find the the you know social sector to plug some gaps along the way. That's that's obviously the model which we we try to implement large scale change in. Um, but it's interesting your point. It's like we 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 particularly over COVID, there is such a anti or oh, a trust a trust issue with authority and i think it really came out and we you know just to shine the light we see particularly with the young men via if i put my man cave hat on there was a huge uh anti-authority mindset with teenage boys coming through who were growing up feeling disenfranchised uninspired and then they look at certain political leaders and go i actually don't feel represented by you at all and we're starting to see that divide bigger than ever bigger than ever before which is interesting when you have this generation raised by effectively social media and when i say social media they're raised by algorithms and those algorithms are feeding them you know content that is often shocking and sensationalized and is a performance opposed to reality um and it's it's yeah i i often think about that and you know kind of government conversations we're having now and advising government on certain policies but also saying hey if we don't do something about this it is going to be one of the biggest issues of our time a generation of young men who are confused lonely and angry about their identity and the world they're inheriting so it is interesting and i thought so i think we saw that play out in COVID. you know and and you know the disinformation that was shared online that actually you know who was right who was wrong and people became these pseudo experts and then it's just so layered but i do think that's something which is you know, particularly the rise of, you know, the exponential growth of AI as well, you know, we're, we're going to be entering into some very, very tricky territory. And often it feels like the genie is out of the bottle already and we're trying to catch it. Um, so maybe just to yeah, to speak to that, I'd be curious your your take on, on that. Yeah. And again, I think, you know, in the work, we, you know, it's, it's actually, you know, good to sort of spend a moment on just the work you do with Mancake because I think it's, it's incredibly important work and, and having um and you know it's it's it is really difficult being you know a, a young adolescent or young man or, or or you know young woman um there's a lot of complexity in the work you're doing um with boys and young men is is incredibly important and and um and, and you know really really important work look i think we're I don't know. It feels like there there is a little bit of a. It feels like a little bit of a like 
firstly, it's been a quite a complicated time, and and you know, and so uh, it's an environment where some people are doing incredibly well and other people are doing less well. And you know, whilst we've seen on a global sense um, reduction in income inequality, we've actually seen a lot of big increases in most Western countries, in the US most profound. We've seen a massive increase in income inequality within countries. I mean, the Gini coefficient, which is probably the most common measure of income inequalities at the highest level in the US than it has been since basically pre-Great Depression. And so in 100 years, essentially 100 years, and, and again, much higher in countries like Australia than it was, way lower than it is in America, but certainly higher than it has been. And that's just one manifestation of it. People feeling disenfranchised, people feeling like the system is, is not fair, it's working against them, and that's manifesting itself in extreme policies on the right and on the left. You know, I love if you think about, I mean, there's been a lot of turmoil in France, but if you actually think about what I think, what Macron's trying to do when he talks about the radical centre, that feels a lot That feels a lot more comfortable to me than the radical right or the radical left, personally. And, um, and so it's just a complicated time. I do think people have to take ownership for this stuff. I, I think there are explanations and there are causes and you have to be empathetic to, you know, this isn't, this stuff is not simple. I think though we've sort of like, it It feels like, I remember reading Paul Kelly, the, the journalist Paul Kelly um, um, wrote a line after Donald, I still remember this line, it's such a great line after Donald Trump was elected and he said every revolution, referring to the election of Obama, every revolution leads to a counter-revolution. Mm. And, and it feels like at the moment the counter-revolutionary forces have quite a lot of momentum. And um, and and ultimately, um, ultimately, as a society, we need to progress across a whole lot of uh, dimensions, um, and embracing that the need to to do something about climate change being an important part of it, um, and and how we operate as a society, and 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 you know opportunities for young for young uh, for girls and young women compared to you know there's all these issues that need to do with society. And it feels like we've made quite a lot of progress on, on some of them and less progress on others. But there's all these forces who are kind of, you know, as a result of these changes, there are people who are negatively impacted or feel they're being negatively impacted or, yes, maybe being manipulated by social media. And so, you know, if you are, if you've earned your living um, as a coal miner, you might react in a very, very negative way. In, in a very negative way to, you know, desire to close down coal mines. And then if there are people, of course, trying to make you angry to, to, to get political gain from that, then, of course, there'll be a reinforcement of all that sort of stuff. So it's sort of a difficult time. It's a polarised time. Um, but it's also, there's a lot of, you know, real, I think really, really amazing stuff happening in the world. And I'm, I'm a really optimistic person. And I sort of feel like, you know, progress is not linear. Um, and you take steps forward and you take steps backward and everyone has a different definition of progress. Some people are excited by AI. Some people are horrified by AI. The truth is always going to be more nuanced than, than the way we present it as individuals. Um, and there's a lot of, lot, lot, feels like there's a lot more challenges in the world over the last 10 or 15 years than perhaps was the case in the preceding 30 or 40 years, perhaps. Yeah, well, I think it comes with just, yeah, we're definitely on the hockey stick kind of growth of a number of things at once. Uh, and what's fueled that is, you know, obviously the the super rise of you know, everything. I know we talked about AI, but there's just, there's so many competing fa like factors at once at the moment. And 
also, you know, this younger generation growing up with access to, you know, devices from the ages of being born, you know, just fast tracks and democratizes knowledge and information in a way that we've never seen before. So, you know, it is, it is wild to think about the change that's happened and what's going to happen. Um, And it just, it makes me kind of think though, it's like, you know, coming back on your point around that income inequality. And, you know, I'm I'm sure many of us have heard those statistics or those uh, comments that like, you know, the top eight wealthiest men hold, you know, the same wealth as the bottom 50% of our entire population or, or some sentiment like that. You can kind of extract the the meaning of that. And it's, it is for me getting to this point going, well, what's the ultimate end game we're all playing here? You know, is it about sustainability of the human race? And if so, what's the, what's the approach we're taking? Um, because to your point, we can't have, it, progress is not linear, but also we can't have exponential growth on a finite planet. Um, and it just, it, yeah, the sum doesn't add up. And so it does get me thinking, you know, particularly my generation growing up. And I, I like that I've kind of grown up going, okay, you can do well financially and do good socially at the same time. And, you know, our model of kind of entrepreneurship or in my little bubble is, it's not necessarily make the wealth and then set up a fund and then you can give away, you know, as you go, it's like, how do you, how do you apply a business mindset to social problems to, you know, live a life that is supportive and, you know, levels of financial freedom, but also you're making a dent in the universe along the way. Um, 100%. And I think, and I think the big thing that's happened with like your generation compared to mine is whatever people are doing in their lives with their, with their work lives, with their volunteering, community activities, family life, People want purpose, and I think people are really clear about that. And and there is nothing wrong with making a profit. Um, in my view, there's absolutely nothing wrong with making a profit. But if you can kind of, you know, if you can actually contribute in a positive way to the community as a result of that and, and actually think about that, no, these things aren't a trade-off, which is like, oh, I'm going to do terrible things to the planet or I'm really going to exploit people as part of my day, day job. But then when I make a lot of money, I'm going to give it away and do some good. As you said, it's not a healthy way of thinking about it. The healthy way of thinking about it is, is let's not think about these things being in competition. How can I both, you know, create profit, create jobs, create prosperity, but do it in a way that is sustainable um, and, and something, you know, where you, you can actually feel like, you know, you as an individual and the people alongside you and, you know, feel like there's a, a really important purpose for achieving yeah, absolutely. It's how can I be of service to the whole? And I think, yeah, my hope is we are moving away from this individualistic narrative that we've kind of been in for for a little while now back into community and community prosperity. Um, but as we start to land this plane, Paul, um, I'm curious about the the word legacy for you. And I've been lucky to to meet your kids who I think are fantastic how do you think about your legacy as, as someone who will obviously be a role model for the kids in your life, but also if we fast track quite a few years from now, um, you know, yeah, it's, I hope so. <laughs> that's the plan. That's the plan. Um, how do you start to think about, I know I look, I know I look about 80, but I really am only 55. It comes, comes with the territory. It comes with the territory of entrepreneurship. I'm noticing that too. <laughs> Um, yeah, how do you, how do you think about it? You know, even picking up those threads around what we were just talking about, you know, what's the world we want to hand over to, you know, the future generations and, you know, we being the richest man in the graveyard's not that useful, is it? You know, so it's, how do you start to think about legacy for, for you? I, I probably don't think about it in those terms. The word legacy, 
why doesn't resonate with me a lot. I mean, I think the word impact resonates a lot. Yeah. And um, and thinking about how how you can have an impact and what you can do to, to contribute positively and make a difference. And that and you know, and everyone it's different for everyone. I mean, just the, the person who's a remarkable the person who's a remarkable parent or the person who volunteers every week. I mean, those those people are having impact. So people do it in, in, in different ways. And obviously as a society, we you know, we recognize some people more than others, but you know, we, we shouldn't. Um and um and so I think, yeah, you do you do think a little bit more about impact and and how you best do that and how you spend your time and and how you you know how you know obviously um there's a time component. I'm incredibly lucky in a financial sense, and so there's a there's a there's a financial component of being able to have an impact. Um, and I think that's. I mean, for me, that's a that's a work in progress. Um, um, in terms of what you do, I, I think we have. I think I've probably. Uh, I, I think hopefully in the next phases of my career, and I and I'm, I'm 55. I hope I'm kind of going pretty strong. You know, for another 30, 35 years in a career sense. I mean, I, you know, I certainly plan to always be working, however that's defined. Um, and I, I think that as you think about that next stage, you start, you know, what are the priorities? The priorities become less about less, you know, and, and that's probably partly an age thing. It's probably just a stage of life thing, and a whole lot of other things as well. Becomes less about. You know, financial security. Where obviously I'm lucky, and that's not a it's not a, a, a big priority. Um, hopefully, it's not about sort of status and recognition. But all of us have, have you know ego and our makeup and stuff like that. You know, hopefully, it's about impact and being really thoughtful about um, um, that impact. Really thoughtful about that impact. And I think you know through startups and through investing and through venture capital, hopefully, I would have an impact because I'm really proud of the founders that we back and the work that they do. But but hopefully there's a whole lot of other things that I can do in my career um, or through philanthropy, you know, over over the next few decades. Um, and, and for me, that probably is measured. For me, impact has probably been more at sort of a macro on a broad level than a sort of a, you know, no, it's actually probably both. Because I think one of the things, one of the things you touched on this earlier, one of the things that I really enjoy being able to do is, you know, look, people sometimes reach out, like I reach out to people all the time for advice and help, and they've been incredibly generous with me, and and other people do that with me, and and so for me the criteria, and I try to catch up with as many people as I possibly can. I actually have carved out time on a, on a Friday morning with just to meet with people who you know looking for for help and advice and stuff, and I have a handful of slots every Friday morning, and um and for me the main criteria for for like if you know deciding whether or not you know it makes sense to catch up is actually do i think i can help them in, in, in a disproportionate way and so for example and and this can apply to individual level and can apply to a broad macro level if you can spend half an hour of your time and can make a really really significant impact to someone like why wouldn't you do it it's be completely mad uh, you'd be completely mad and, and ungenerous not to do it. And so sometimes just one thing that you say to someone or an introduction you make, and I know I've been the beneficiary of this. Um, but so that's how I think about impact at an individual level. And you can think about it at a broader organisational level and do that in a leveraged way. And I don't mean leveraged in a financial sense. I mean, leveraged where, you know, ever, all of us have finite time, finite resources, how do we measure it? If you can have a really significant impact across the dimensions that are important to you, 
relative to those resources. And that's a really, really powerful thing. And so that's, that's a sort of a lens for me to think about impact. I love that. It's, you know, it's, it's in your being opposed to a specific strategy or this ideal end game. It's like, if I just continue living my values and be generous with my time and resources where appropriate, that's impact. So, um, and also I think, yeah, the, my experience anyway, the, the universe rewards generosity. Um, um, it seems to be this, uh, I don't know if you call it karmic or not. Yeah, but it rewards it rewards generosity. I think in a different, and I think I think we're on the same page. I think we're aligned with this. Sometimes people think like, oh, if I do the right thing, I kind of yeah. you know like yeah, you know, I have this sort of karmic. I I don't feel like the world works that way. I'll tell you what I do think the world works like is is that you know the world rewards generosity because the way you feel about yourself. What I mean, what you like. I mean, when I catch up with a twenty four year old who wants career advice, I always get something out of it. Um, that's not why I'm doing. I'm not having. I'm not having a meeting with the individual because I'm going to learn. Say I'm doing something because they've asked me, and I feel I can help and have an impact. But you get something about us. You feel better about yourself. Um, um, there is a. You know, there is. A, there, there's something about. There's something about helping people. There's something about people helping you. Um, and and we are very. You know, we are very social in the broader sense of the word as a, as a species. And. Um, and yet there, there is absolutely a reward. And, and, you know, and sometimes also what happens is like an unexpected reward because you learn something or you meet someone and your only intention is just like someone's asked a favour and they want you to give you some advice and you've actually received this completely unexpected benefit. And that's a, that's a kind of a really nice thing to happen. And that, that maybe is the sort of the karmic stuff you're talking about, which is really cool. No, I absolutely agree. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend trying to game <laughs> to game karma, um, but exactly no, I, right. I, I think when you go in with with you know open intentions and good and clear intentions, it's amazing what does eventuate. Um, well, Paul, I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah, as I said at the beginning, Pleasure. amazing uh, supporter of me personally, but by extension of that man cave and stuff as well. And you know, I know, I know you're a busy man. You're in Tel Aviv at the moment. And um, yeah, you, you've just always made yourself open and accessible to me. So I just want to say thank you so much for for doing that. And yeah, I'm excited for for our journey to continue. Likewise. And, and you know, this the, I love what you're doing with this podcast, but more importantly, what you're doing with Man Cave, what you're doing with stuff is really, really important work. So well done and thank you. Awesome. Mm-hmm.